Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Networks podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We represent various groups working on literacy in the state. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Brightspot Ed LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources. Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Bell Smith. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Susan Hall, a nationally recognized leader in RTI data analysis, and reading instruction. Dr. Hall has more than 20 years of experience in the field of reading intervention, having authored eight books, including the best-selling I've Dibbled, Now What?, and Implementing Response to Intervention. Her eighth book, 10 Success Factors for Literacy Intervention, was published by ASCD in July of 2018. Dr. Hall is a leading expert on the use of dibbles and letters. She is a former national board member of the International Dyslexia Association. Susan earned a master's in business administration at Harvard University and a doctorate in education from National Lewis University. She has written multiple books, including co-authoring books with Louisa Motes, including Straight Talk About Reading, How Parents Can Make a Difference in the Early Years, and Parenting a Struggling Reader. Welcome, Dr. Hall. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Shelley. I'm really grateful for this opportunity to speak with you today. This is a true honor to get to talk to you today. I know you've had a long history of working with literacy, including dyslexia. How did you get started with this work and how did it lead you to what you're doing now? So I got started because when my oldest child, my son, came home from school in first grade, and he looked at me and he said, Mom, why am I in the top math group and the lowest reading group? And I looked at him and said, Brandon, I don't know. This is like in October first grade. Brandon, I don't know. And I'm going to find out. And I'll have an answer to your question. I actually wasn't in literacy at that point. My son is in his 30s. And that was a turning point in my life. It was an amazing turning point for my life and my family's life. It turns out that when I went to school and I spoke with his teacher, really wonderful, charming, amazing first grade teacher, she told me that, in fact, he, he was not doing very well in reading. And I was, you know, a couple conferences later in the spring, I'm like, okay, how's it going? And she's like, he's still behind. In fact, he is still in the lowest reading group. And she said, it's the strangest thing. Can do all these things. And she's describing all of his skills. And she says, I I don't understand it. I don't really know why he can't pick this up. Okay. I take a deep breath and I say, well, should he be tested? And she's like, oh no, I couldn't possibly recommend him for testing. He's not a year behind. I took a deep breath and I was like, we're going to wait for him to fail longer? Like, I don't get it. And she's like, I'm sorry, but I can't. That's the rules. So I took it into my own hands. I hired an educational uh, tester evaluator, and it turns out he's dyslexic. Well, no one in my family, nobody else was dyslexic. I didn't know a thing about dyslexia. I, I was like, what? So 
that began what has now been a 25-year journey. And it led me to do a lot of things. One was just being a parent, experiencing that. We did get him into some fantastic tutoring. I luckily got referred to the International Dyslexia Association's Illinois branch, and they gave me a list of tutors, and I called those tutors, and I went to meet with them, and I chose one, and Mrs. Donenberg taught him to read. And he would even say to me later, Mom, why doesn't so-and-so, his teacher at the time, know what Mrs. Donenberg knows about reading? You know, he saw it with his little, you know, six-year-old eyes. So he caught up, and in second grade, he was still behind somewhat, but he really caught up. He was tutored off and on, unfortunately, outside of the school system, really all the way through. He never was on an IEP, not because I didn't want him to be, but because when I knew enough and I started attending a lot of conferences. And when I knew a lot more, I realized that the instruction he would get if he were on an IEP really wouldn't help him because the teachers hadn't been trained. So that led me to start getting trained myself, not because I thought I could tutor him, but I was just fascinated. So I went back, I got a, a master's first, and then went on for a doctorate in education. And at some point, a little wise into it, my husband looked at me and said, you love this work. This is your passion why are you doing your business consulting? Just stop. I'm like, well, I don't know how I'm going to make any money at this. I don't know if I can make a living, you know, and he's like, just go for it. So I did. It was obviously my passion. Because of the International Dyslexia Association, I actually gained so much knowledge in the dyslexia field first, but that a lot of that generalized to how reading develops for all students. And so I went back and got Orton Gillingham training. I got a lot of training. I'm highly trained in a lot of people's work. And lo and behold, I decided to write a book. And that turned out to be straight talk about reading. And I networked to to actually Marcia Henry, who was the person who was the national um, IDA director. And I said, I've, I'm writing this book. I'm afraid nobody will believe me. I need a really reputable co-author. She said, well, there's three people. And I said, okay, which one would be the best? And she said, well, Louisa Motes, but she's super busy. I don't think she'll do it. And that didn't stop me. <laughs> I sent my book outline to Louisa and she read it. And all of a sudden I got this call on a Sunday afternoon. I've read your book outline and I will do this with you. We hadn't even met but she liked the concept. And so literally, Louisa has mentored me for over 25 years. I am so lucky. And one thing led to another. I decided I was interested in not just those students who are, in fact, already behind, but in what teachers know about reading development. So that led me to gen ed. And that's where my career has been. Although I, my heart is still always with kids who are dyslexic. So I know a lot about dyslexia, but my work is more in the field of making sure teachers know and have the instructional strategies and tools to provide good instruction to struggling readers, but also to the whole class. That is an amazing story. It really is. I love how things work out, though, when you follow your passion and good things happen. This is what I was supposed to be doing. That's all there is to it. I mean, how lucky could I be that Louisa Motes took me under her wings. When I was at that stage of my life 25 years ago, how did that happen? As a person of faith, I think that was a God thing. That's why I look at it. I don't have another explanation. I agree. You've written multiple books, one of which is I've Dibbled, Now What? And you are well known as an expert in the area of dibbles and data analysis. 
why is Dibbles and similar assessments, why are these programs still relevant when there are so many other assessments that are available now? I am really glad you asked that question because I am seeing a trend in our country that concerns me that I'd like to talk a little bit about. So those of us who were in the world of professional development and very involved in the Reading First rollout across this country, we all learned a ton about Dibbles. And I was very fortunate because I was actually teaching this workshop about how to use the Dibbles data. I was always fascinated with assessment data. My workshop became the book, I've Dibbled Now What? And that book came out during Reading First. So that was very fortuitous. And I learned how to understand what was holding a child back through Dibbles data very early on in my work. And still today, that data speaks to me. I look at it and see the the errors that the student has made, and I piece it together. And it doesn't tell me everything I need to know, but it points me in the direction of what more I need to know from a diagnostic assessment then. So from my perspective, looking back on my 25-year career in this work, I realized that I learned a ton about students, their reading development, and how to tell when there's something wrong and what might be wrong from learning about the data, learning to read that data. And I consider Dibbles to be a type of assessment. It's a curriculum-based measure, and there are actually sort of three brands now. It's Dibbles, Acadians, and Ames Web that fit in this category of these curriculum-based measures. And they are amazingly effective for the short period of time that one spends administering it. So my concern that I mentioned when we first started talking about this is that I am seeing the rollout across our nation of a lot of computer-based assessments that are being used in place of what we used to use, Dibbles and AmesWeb, and now Acadians also in the marketplace. I see these computer-based assessments. So essentially, we have early literacy screening assessments that we're asking kindergartners and first and second and third graders to sit in front of a computer and be assessed on the computer. And I do not believe that a teacher can actually tell their phonological awareness deficits from this for a five-year-old. And then you think about the second and third graders. The first, second, and third graders, teachers over the years have told me so much about how when they listen to the oral reading fluency, when they're giving an instrument like Dibbles, when they're giving that and they spend two and a half minutes, three minutes, sometimes four minutes listening to a student read several passages, they tell me, I don't actually listen to students read on this kind of daily basis in my classroom like this. I don't sit across and listen to a student read aloud to me for a minute. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, if that's what they've been telling me, then that means that with these computer-based ones where we just sit the child down in front of the computer and they get assessed on the computer, Teachers may not really be making the time to listen to their students read aloud one-on-one like that. That worries me because what you can learn about those errors and hearing the student is just, it can't be replaced with the computer assessment. So there's a lot of new assessments. They're spreading like wildfire. They're very attractive and appealing to administrators and teachers because, oh my gosh, the kids are on the computer it's easier. It might seem more reliable. It might seem like, oh my gosh, I don't have to worry about all that data. I'm, I think we're looking at a shiny penny 
that is going to, in hindsight, not have given us the same kind of data that we were able to achieve. And our teachers need to be giving something face-to-face in the K through third grade for early literacy to watch children. They will learn more by giving the assessment, and we're not acknowledging that with these computer-based assessments. So I have a concern about what I see happening with this trend. That makes a lot of sense because as a former elementary principal, I gave Dibbles hundreds and hundreds of times and I would know. And, you know, my background is a high school English teacher. I had to learn reading when I went to the, as an administrator, but I could tell I knew before kids even got to certain words that they were going to trip up over them. And so it affected the way that I approached my duties as an administrator for professional learning and for being in classrooms, watching what was being done for instruction, because I knew what kids needed based on what I learned from them through the Dibbles assessment. So that makes so much sense. So that actually like fills in a hole for for me and my own learning I have uh, about literacy in, in my head. So thank you so much. Some of what you wrote quite some time ago has now been identified as essential to the current work on the science of reading, such as the importance of explicit teaching and monitoring of phonological awareness and also teaching phonics to develop orthographic mapping. How does it feel to be so far ahead of your time? It's interesting because It's funny to be asked the question that way because I don't really think about being ahead of my time. But what I do think is there were moments when it felt like I was a little bit, I don't want to say out on a limb because I knew the science and I never veered from the science. And I knew a lot about the development of phonological awareness. But when, when, for example, David Kilpatrick wrote his book, The Essentials Book, I read that book going, yes, yes, yes. And, And it was finally like there was a lot of validation in that book about the importance of the development, the very discrete steps of phonological awareness and why we need to monitor students' development and why, and he talks about the phonemic proficiency, and that's a beautiful term that he gave to all of us that was so descriptive about, we want students to develop phonemic awareness to the level where they are so proficient at it that they can manipulate sounds in their head when they hear words, and it leads to them being able to recognize new words so well and learn new words from words they already know. And so when he started talking about, as you know, he talked a lot about phonemic proficiency, but he also talked in his book about orthographic mapping. And I think that I will credit David Kilpatrick for not only the term phonemic proficiency, which will stay in our field, I think, forever, but also his attention to the orthographic mapping process. And even in Reading First, we were all doing sound symbol association with Elkonen boxes and moving manipulatives. And to me, the Elkonen boxes and moving manipulatives was so powerful for the students that I got to sit in front of and watch. And that was the way to teach it. We are developing a student's brain's ability to do orthographic mapping. Orthographic mapping is a process in the brain. It's not a skill. It's a process in the brain. But when you use the, the sound spelling mapping Elkonen boxes and you move manipulatives into the box and you have students finger stretch sounds and then dot the boxes they're going to need and then pull a manipulative down, we use color-coded manipulatives where, for example, the blue circle stands for consonant and the red stands for short vowels. So a CVC word would be blue, red, blue. And that process of 
mapping first the phonological sounds and then below it, writing the letters that are associated, the letters that spell each sound you write below. That's orthographic mapping. It's phonological until you have pulled the, uh, you know, a manipulative into each box and then it becomes orthographic the minute you write a letter to represent the sound. And so David Kilpatrick really explained to the field why orthographic mapping is so critical. Orthographic mapping, again, is that brain process, but we teach it and inspire the brain to do it through sound spelling mapping kinds of uh, techniques, which we're in reading first, which have been in letters, which have been taught forever in all of professional development, but the why we teach it and what it does for students and why they need it is what he brought to the field. So I credit him and others who have done that. So I would say orthographic mapping became an incredibly important piece. We were doing the sound spelling mapping with the chips starting in about 2009, which was toward the end of reading first, but we took it to the colors because the colors helped the students to see the syllable type and the pattern. Blue, red, blue is a closed syllable. Blue, blue, red, blue is also a closed syllable. Blue, blue, red, where there's nothing after the short vowel is not a closed syllable. So we took and used the colors to go a step further, which I think is really important, which is understanding the syllable type informs the student when they're looking at a new word, how to pronounce the vowel sound. So that's why orthographic mapping is, is so, so valuable for students learning to, it's a valuable skill for them to have or a valuable brain process for them to have. So why do you think it's taken so long for these things to be adopted by other people? I think it's because sometimes what's happening in the reading field is these strategies like sound spelling mapping to develop orthographic mapping capability in the brain is a science-based way that is based on science, what we now call the science of reading, of developing a process that the student is learning to read through those sorts of skills. What happens is the newest shining penny comes along, which is, for example, cueing, three cueing or other cueing of, oh, you look at a word you don't know, I eh, don't bother to sound it out. Just look around for a picture and look at the first letter and think about what the sound of that is and look at the context around it and go back and guess the word. All of those cues that became so, so much a part of several different programs that spread through the country and it looked and felt to teachers like that would be what I would tell students to do. In fact, that's contrary to what the brain needs you to do if you want to be a good reader. So those were taking the student away from the letter sound study of left to right study those letters. It was absolutely taking us in the wrong direction. So unfortunately, what has happened is across our country, we get taken by these new ideas that seem on the surface logical, appealing, and unfortunately, it's exactly the wrong thing. So I think that this science of reading effort that's going on right now is, is, thank goodness, bringing us back to, well, what do we actually have science to prove how the brain learns to read? So it's hard. These things that we've known for some time keep getting buried when something else that looks attractive takes its place. And that's what's been happening. I agree. You're obviously an expert in phonics instruction, which is a huge part of structured literacy and part of the current call to action for improving student reading skills. Can you tell us what an effective phonics lesson should include? 
Yes. So an effective phonics lesson should have, first of all, some some principles about the instruction, and then it should include some things. So the principles are it should be explicit, systematic, sequential, and diagnostic. Those four come from the International Dyslexia Association, although they very much are not just for kids that who, who are identified as dyslexic. They're good characteristics. They're principles. That the instruction should be all of those things. Good phonics instruction should be explicit, systematic, sequential, and diagnostic. Now, what does a lesson include? The lesson needs some upfront. I think it should start with some phonemic awareness activation through just a quick oral couple minutes. And then it should go to an explicit teaching of the phonics concept that is the focus of the lesson. And following the explicit explanation and teaching of the phonics concept, essentially you have a series of things that you're doing in the middle between the introduction and taking it to text. And the series of things in the middle are all designed to give the student practice at the word level, becoming better at recognizing and applying the phonics concept to words that are unknown to the child. So those things in the middle, before you're in connected text at the end of the lesson, the things in the middle include word sorting, sentence dictation, writing words that have that. Word sorting is about making sure they understand the pattern. This word fits the pattern we just talked about. This one doesn't. This one fits it. This one doesn't. So we do a lot of things in the middle there, which is practicing at the word level to get much, much more accurate and fluent at the word level, and then we have to take it to text. And so taking it to text is, in a good phonics lesson, it's going to be decodable text. It's not going to be authentic text for a good phonics lesson. A good phonics lesson needs to have that. So that's what I think a good phonics lesson looks like. I love your discussion of the connection to text, because that, to me, is the part that gets left off sometimes. And it's the reason that the skills never really get transferred over to reading ability. And that's why we need a transfer to text process, which is if you want them to take the individual skill at the word level into text, we need to provide a way to do that. And so we have a transfer text process that our company developed. And it, it's where those students highlight the words that have the focus skill. They read just those words. Then they read the whole sentence where they use the highlighted passage, then they put the highlighted passage aside and they look at an unhighlighted one and they read it without the highlights. And that's called the transfer to text process. And so 95% group uh, created that process and letters asked for permission to include it in letters so that Louisa asked if they could get permission to include that transfer to text because she really does value the need to not just teach students at the word level, but help them to take that word level identification of the pattern and being able to read it in now a passage. So that's called a transfer to text process. I'd forgotten that. So I can't believe that I had forgotten that piece. So thank you for including that because I would have totally left that out. One of your books is the 10 success factors for literacy intervention, getting results with MTSS in elementary schools. Can you tell us about these success factors and how focusing on these elements could help schools? Yes, the 10 success factors is a book that I wrote when I was trying to help schools identify that RTI or MTSS is a process. It's about a bigger process that you need to be conscious of in your school. So If you want data-driven small group intervention, it's about learning to set aside the time for tier two and tier three in the schedule. It's about figuring out how many teachers you need 
to get your group sizes small enough and how you're going to get that. We recommend what we call a walked intervention model. So one of our success factors is that students don't necessarily during the 30 minute tier two block, they don't all stay in the room, in their own homeroom. They are shared across the classrooms at that grade level so that they can be grouped in a much more clustered way with other students who need exactly that same skill. But in order to do that, one of the other success factors is that you not only need the curriculum-based measures, the early literacy screening instruments that identify who is behind, but you need the diagnostic assessment to really tell which skills they've mastered and haven't mastered so that you can group students very tightly by missing skills. Then you need to use progress monitoring, which is another one of the success factors to group and regroup students. We recommend every three weeks. And all of this has to sit within a framework of leadership support and professional development for this whole system. It's an ecosystem in your school, and it needs to be viewed as having all these pillars. So the 10 success factors are around the things that we have learned in our work are necessary to put in place in a school, a sustainable model that will actually provide data differentiated small group instruction to improve student reading. We called it walk to read. We implemented that process. And so obviously I'm a fan of your work and have implemented so much of it. So it just makes me smile when I think about the correlations that I've implemented in my own practice. It always makes me happy to hear that when I hear people saying, yeah, I've done that. I've tried that. It worked. It did. Obviously, intervention is very important, but can we focus on intervention too much? I think that the that's a great question about whether our focus on intervention could ever be too much. The way I think about that is you can't intervene your way out of a serious tier one problem if your student population comes in with deficits. Now, you might be able to intervene your way out of a tier one problem. If you have very high, high achieving, high vocabulary readers who walk in the door, then maybe it would work in that kind of a school. But in a school that really has to teach kids how to read, then you've got to have a really strong tier one. And the thing that's interesting is some people in this field say to schools, you must change your tier one first. And I agree that tier one needs to be addressed if it's weak, but I've never gotten a school to recognize how to do that unless they put a strong tier two in first while they're working on their tier one. And then they see what is working in tier two. And they're absolutely stunned that children who are receiving the right kind of instruction are making those kinds of gains. And it helps them to see what's not working about their tier one. So my approach is work on your tier one and your tier two simultaneously, put in a strong tier two, and it will inform you and you'll be more willing to, schools will be more willing to understand where they need to supplement their tier one. I don't think you can ever focus too much on intervention, but you can't let intervention not address the tier one deficits if they exist. I need to pull my copy of your book out and it's dog-eared, but just so much of what you're saying are things that I've said. So yay, I love hearing what I believe and from the person who taught it to me in the first place. So it's just fabulous. I know you've been a national letters trainer and have a lot of experience with it. Obviously, In Alabama, we have a lot of people being trained in this program. What do you think the benefits will be, perhaps even beyond just better reading achievement in students? So letters is the gold standard. There is nothing that compares to it. 
if you want to train your teachers about reading development and what they need to know in order to understand how students learn to read, when it doesn't go right, what to do, you will use letters. Nothing compares to it. Anything that attempts to be one or two week version of it or something that looks that looks like it might be the same as letters, it is not letters. And one of the things that excites me so much about talking to you, Shelley, is that Alabama has done a lot of letters training. And I can do nothing but take my hat off to your state. Any state that really, really wants to get to the bottom in a long-term sustainable way of improving reading outcomes should do letters. There's nothing like it. Nothing. And I don't work for letters. I'm not paid anything by letters. Yes, you know, I've been a national letters trainer for a really long time. I know Louisa, but I'm not an employee, anything related. I don't get paid anything by letters. I'm telling you from the bottom of my heart, letters is the gold standard. The thing that it does that you won't get necessarily if you do something that's shorter and looks like it might be more palatable to teachers or easier for teachers, it will be a shortcut that maybe won't accomplish the same long-term goal. Because the thing that we get from letters is we have this swinging pendulum going on in the United States, actually in other countries too that are English-speaking countries. But it's this pendulum of we teach based on explicit instruction in decoding and we teach early reading skills in a way that we now identify as aligned with the science of reading. And then for a while, we do that, we see some gains, and then all of a sudden something new comes along. And I call it the new shiny penny. So three queuing came along. And everything that we were doing under the reading first decade and with programs that were written that were a little more aligned with the the science on how to teach reading, we started to make gains. They weren't all visible yet because it takes a long time. And all of a sudden, this new approach comes along and the field swings again. And if you look back over time, starting in the 1950s, the pendulum has swung on how to teach reading in our country about every 10 to 15 years. And it always swings between the whole word approach and the decoding, teaching kids to decode approach. And the thing that's really bad is there's nothing that seems to be able to stop that from happening in this country. You have only one thing that can stop it from happening, and that is informed educators who understand that we can't be allowing this shift away from what's working to happen. And state departments of education that recognize that this isn't going to work, this new thing. So we need educators who know so much that they that you are going to inoculate against the swings. We're going to inoculate against this temptation to go away from teaching teachers. We need teachers to have that knowledge base. And unfortunately, they're not getting it in, and I didn't get it in my master's program or my doctorate. I got it outside of the higher education field, which most of us will tell you that's what we're all saying. And so when you invest in letters, particularly a statewide initiative like Alabama has been doing, you have the best chance to inoculate your state against these major swings that take us off course. And entire decades of children don't learn to read as well. And that's why you should stick with letters, stay the course. That is great advice. And I hadn't really thought about the pendulum swing issue, but we've seen it so many times. And every time I feel like it's our kids that suffer. And it also destroys the faith that our teachers have in what we're asking them to do when they're doing something that works 
And then we ask them to, and I always used to call it the silver bullet. Okay, if we just do this one thing, it's going to magically make all of our problems disappear. And so I, I think inoculating them by giving them this, the knowledge and the skills to know better is just brilliant. That is exactly why you should stay the course with letters. After a year of interrupted learning due to COVID-19, it seems like learning this summer is more important than ever. How do you think schools and districts should approach supporting students that have unfinished learning? This is something I'm deeply concerned about. We have had just a horrible year with COVID in K-12 education, and especially I'm going to talk just about K-5. Teachers have worked so hard. They have done everything possible. I do not know how they've even done it. Principals have had to lead in a time when none of us were prepared to lead in this situation that we're in where we're vacillating, we're swinging back and forth between hybrid and face-to-face and all remote. And, and the curriculum that students have gotten this year, while it is the best that could have ever been given, can't be the same as if we had had those kindergarten through at least third graders in front of us all year long. So we have now a, a situation in front of us where summer school is more important than ever. It's never been a time I can ever remember in my career that summer school is, is as important. So my, my thought about summer school is, first, first of all, we have money. Through all of the COVID stimulus funds for the first time in a long time, there is money. So there's money coming down. Money's not going to stop us. We have tired teachers, burned out teachers. So we're going to have to be very sensitive to asking them to teach summer school, begging them to teach summer school, incentivizing them to teach summer school. So we have our best teachers teaching summer school. One way you can do that is give them lesson plans that are done for them and done right so that they actually don't have as much curriculum planning that will just discourage our best teachers from wanting to teach summer school. So I recommend a strong focus on looking at the data, looking at exactly what students did not master this year, and definitely planning your summer school around that. Now, in the absence of data, I think that most of us know that K-3 students are going to be weaker probably than ever before in phonological awareness and phonics and word analysis and, and the word level reading skills. So I would say If you didn't have a lot of great data to tell you exactly, don't spend your time on comprehension and all of those things for K-3. Yes, for older students, and I'm not saying they also aren't important, embed the comprehension in, but make sure they get their word learning skills this summer. Make sure you, as best possible, work on phonics, phonological awareness, phonics, and word study, multisyllable routines, getting really, really good, but also applied, definitely in text, in decodable text. But phonics and phonological awareness should be a really big part of your summer school for K-3 students. I can't really speak to the older grades, but I can really make that strong recommendation for this summer. I imagine some of those upper elementary students need the exact same thing. That's what teachers tell us. And we need to assess them to see if they do. And that's easily done. We can easily assess some of those upper student, upper grade students with a phonics diagnostic screener and tell exactly what they mastered and didn't master at the word level. And often when those upper grades, we tend to think, oh, it's a comprehension problem. But more times than not, it's a comprehension problem that is caused by an underlying weakness in the decoding at the word level. So we have to find out through a diagnostic phonics screener if they have or don't have those skills. Agree completely. 
Susan, thank you so much for being with us today. You've given us a lot of great information and I would encourage everyone to check out the work of the 95% group and Susan Hall. Thank you, Shelley. It's been great to be with you and I really appreciate this chance to, to talk with you today. Absolutely. It's been a, a true honor. Join us again next week for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast.